they count her out time and time again. But she always comes back stronger than a 90s trend. She's someone I was not always a fan of. And that might sound strange if you know me personally. You see, these days, I'm among the first to fire up my Spotify and rave on my socials whenever she drops new music. In fact, three out of five of my most played songs on Spotify for 2020 were from her critically acclaimed album. But can I confess something? I wasn't always like this. Now, one of the things that I will stand by here at A Feminist in Progress is that you can always change your mind about something or someone after you learn new information or are presented with a perspective that is different from yours. That's how I've been when it comes to Taylor Swift. I went from considering her a guilty pleasure to openly criticizing her celebrity feminism to actually considering her a feminist in progress. Part 1. A Guilty Pleasure I first heard teardrops on my guitar in 2007 when I was a 16-year-old high school senior. Look, the song about a teenage girl who was going through unrequited love while also comparing herself to the object of her object of affection's love, that was definitely my adolescent heart's jam. I'll even ignore the fact that it's country, one of my least favorite genres of music. But I was mostly ambivalent when it comes to Taylor. See, when I was 16, I was more of a... Yes, I'm among the millennials who came of age listening to Gen X Rage. (laughs) And sure. A song like You Belong With Me made me feel seen and called out at the same time. I was that teenage girl with low self-esteem who didn't feel good when compared to the other girls. You Belong With Me was the soundtrack of that time in freshman college when the guy I had a crush on had a crush on another girl in our class. Look, 18-year-old me still didn't know that other girls were not my enemy when it comes to the affection of guys. I admit, it was internalized sexism. And that internalized sexism gets you early and you don't shake it off, uh, no pun intended, until you see it for what it is. I mostly considered Taylor Swift a guilty pleasure during her original Fearless era, Speak Now era, and Red era. But you know, songs like The Story of Us, I Knew You Were Trouble, Dear John, among others, they were the soundtrack of my late teens to early 20s. But the 1989 era was really my guilty pleasure. On the one hand, she veered from the country sound I wasn't a fan of and embraced a totally pop sound. 
I actually enjoyed several tracks from 1989, like Blank Space. I was even among those young women who co-opted the line Cause darling, I'm a nightmare dressed like a daydream. On the other hand, the burgeoning feminist in me was starting to notice some things about her. And what I noticed made me not like her. Like, really, really not like her. Part 2. Big Reputation The way the entertainment news media portrayed Taylor at the time heavily influenced the way I perceived her. During her 1989 era, she became so popular that I was caught up in the news media cycle of holding up the shiny new thing we can all love, usually a woman, and then tear apart once she becomes too popular. I was especially caught up in the media narrative of her reputation as a serial dater since those were mostly the news stories about her, who she was dating, and which song was about which guy. Heck, when she started dating Tom Hiddleston shortly after breaking up with Calvin Harris, I must confess that I punched down with my own joke? What drug can you take to move on from a breakup? Swiftamine. Guaranteed to have you moving on to the arms of the god of mischief after a very public breakup. But it wasn't just the optics of her dating life that kept me from being a true Swifty who listened to her music unironically. The 1989 era was the time in her career where I had a problem with her image. First, I had issues with her body image. The Taylor Swift who was pervasive in the media in the mid-2010s was this impossibly thin, tall, gorgeous woman who, I felt, was setting a dangerous standard of body image for her mostly young, impressionable female fans. Second, there was the squad. Suddenly, it seemed like everybody was Taylor Swift's best friend. The squad was presented as this empowering, girl power, women supporting other women moment in pop culture. But I couldn't find myself getting on board despite identifying as a feminist. Now, 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 some of y'all might be thinking, Oh my god, like how can you not support women coming together to break the stereotype of the catty women? Are you even a feminist? It's the internalized misogyny for me. I agree that the squad was a nice little representation of women uniting, but I also suggest watching the music video of Bad Blood again. Help me. It was about women coming together, right? To fight other women? To me, that didn't feel empowering. I didn't see what was empowering about conventionally attractive women coming together to get ready to fight. 
Selena Gomez? Or was it Selena Gomez being a stand-in for Katy Perry? But I will admit that it would also arguably be cheesy if the video had been about them coming together to SMASH THE PATRIARCHY! Considering her brand of celebrity feminism at the time, she would have been accused of pandering or dismissed as just another man-hating SJW. And speaking of bad blood, one of the moments that made me second-guess her feminism was when she had a spat with Nicki Minaj on Twitter because of the, of the 2015 MTV Video Music Award nominations. Just to refresh your memory, let's go back to five and a half years ago when shade was spilled and tea was thrown. Nicki Minaj became vocal on Twitter about the lack of nominations for her video of Anaconda. She even alluded to other girls being nominated for the top prize video of the year. In a different tweet, she started to be more specific about who she was shading, making a reference to videos that celebrate, quote, women with very slim bodies, a contrast to her Anaconda video, which celebrated curvy bodies, specifically black women's bodies. The way Taylor responded didn't sit well with me. But first, I acknowledge that her first response was not to make it a pitting women against each other situation and implied that maybe a male artist took Nikki's spot. What didn't sit well with me was Taylor's tweet wherein she said, and I quote, If I win, please come up with me. You're invited to any stage I'm ever on, end quote. That response missed the point that the issue wasn't just gendered, it was a racial issue as well. What Taylor missed in her public reaction and initial handling of the situation was that Nikki was calling out the music industry's racism. And as a black woman, Nicki Minaj was in a double whammy of sorts for being both black and a woman. For all we know, she could have been experiencing at the time both racism and sexism. Moya Bailey calls this anti-black misogyny as misogynoir to refer to the unique ways black women experience the compounding effects of anti-black racism and misogyny. The trope of the angry black woman was used to portray Minaj with thumbnails of news articles using images of Minaj looking deranged and Taylor as the sweet and calm, dignified white girl. The biggest irony of the situation was pointed out by Katy Perry who tweeted, finding it ironic to parade the pit women against other women argument about as one measurably capitalizes on the takedown of a woman. This was coming from the woman whom bad blood was all about, and I just kind of find that funny and almost poetic. 
Taylor and Nikki eventually made up, even shared the stage together at some point, and the music video that capitalized on the takedown of a woman won video of the year. So, hooray feminism? Then came the infamous phone call with Kanye West leaked by his then-wife Kim Kardashian. Look, by the time I'm recording this, they're getting a divorce. So it's true, women like hunting witches too. Now, if you remember, the clip allegedly proves that Taylor consented to Kanye calling her a bitch in his song Famous of which she had vehemently claimed that she didn't approve of this. I remember seeing a tweet that said something like, Katy Perry tried to warn us. Calvin Harris tried to warn us. Kim Kardashian showed us. I admit that I was part of the virtual mob that unjustly felt vindicated for Taylor's comeuppance. Like, I was somehow personally glad that this faux feminist was exposed and while i wasn't among those who chimed in with the disgusting taylor swift is over tweet or flooded her social media with snake emojis the cocky feminist in me who barely immersed herself in broader feminist concerns was celebrating the fall of a woman who happens to be a public figure Look, you got me, ladies. You caught my feminist crime of internalized misogyny. Take me to Azkaban for feminists. I surrender. The worst thing about prison was the, was the Dementors. Wait, is it appropriate making a reference to a popular work by a turf? Part 3. Look what you made me do. Trigger warning, this section mentions sexual assault, body image, and disordered eating. At this point, my thesis of you can always change your mind is going to start to sound like For the children in WandaVision. But I really do believe in changing your mind once you learn something new or when you realize that your ideas or beliefs are actually problematic. The reputation era was when I thought of Taylor less and less as a guilty pleasure and paid more attention to what was going on with her. By the time the album came out, I was already re-evaluating what I thought feminism was because of all the reading I was doing for grad school. By this time too, the Taylor Swift in the public eye changed. Most of her content and social media disappeared. The opulence of 1989 Taylor Swift was no more. Gone were the images of friends partying at her Rhode Island mansion, her cheesy and very public relationship with Calvin Harris, R.I.P. Swan goals, and her either you're with me or against me vibe that turned me off. Instead, the dark, moody, serpentine image that dominated her reputation era was in place and she had my attention. 
Something paradoxical has happened. The less presence Taylor had on social media, the more I paid attention. She put out the album but didn't do the usual media rounds of promoting the album. Instead, she let the art speak for itself. And in the death of her reputation, she was alive. But what truly changed my mind about her and her feminism was her sexual assault case against DJ David Muller. Taylor accused him of groping her at one of her concerts in 2013. The story goes that they were posing for a photo and, according to Taylor, he reached under her skirt to grope his hand on an intimate part of her body. I shudder thinking about it. I shuddered when I read about it. I even shuddered as I mentioned it. Way too many women know the moment they freeze when their personal space has been violated, when their body has been touched in ways they do not consent to. Immediately following the photo, Taylor's security team was informed of what happened and confronted the DJ. A couple of days after the assault, the DJ's employer was informed by a member of Taylor's team. As a result, he was banned for life from Taylor's concerts and subsequently fired from the radio station he was then working at. Then in 2015, he accused Taylor of defamation and claimed in his lawsuit that he, quote, lost his job and other prospective business opportunities because of the allegations, end quote. The lawsuit sought $3 million in damages from Taylor. She then countersued him for assault and battery, and her lawsuit was for a mere symbolic $1. The case wouldn't be heard in court until 2017, and even then, it dragged on for months. In the documentary Miss Americana, Taylor recounts her experience the victim blaming that's almost the default of the criminal court, the relieving of the trauma that most survivors go through when they testify in court. In August 14 of that year, the former DJ was found guilty. Taylor was awarded the $1 and pledged to donate an unspecified amount to organizations aimed at helping sexual assault victims. In the documentary, Taylor said this about the court victory. You don't feel a sense of any victory when you win because the process is so dehumanizing. This is with seven witnesses and a photo. What happens when you get raped and it's your word against his? Hers was an experience a lot of people, women especially, know all too well. The trauma of sexual assault, the self-blaming and public blaming of the victim, the bargaining you have with yourself on what you could have done that would have prevented the assault, the shame and fear that comes with admitting you were a victim. In the aforementioned documentary, Taylor also opened up about her struggle with an unspecified eating disorder. She said that the way the media scrutinized her body, 
whether they said she was too thin or that she looked pregnant, triggered her to starve a little bit, just stop eating. The documentary juxtaposes clips of her performing on stage and walking the red carpet and posing for the cameras with her talking about internalizing impossible beauty standards, which she describes as It's all just fucking impossible. She talks about taking to extremes, exercising more and eating less. The defensive behavior of claiming she's okay when someone voices concern for her well-being. And the obsessive behavior of journaling what she eats. When the news media began reporting this scene in the documentary prior to its release on Netflix, I was confronted with my aforementioned perceptions about her based on her body and any judgment I had about her. I too have internalized those fucking impossible beauty standards and struggle with them myself. But I didn't realize that she was also part of the struggle. The woman I was critiquing and scrunching my nose at was having a personal battle of her own. She was also caught up in the cogs of capitalist patriarchy's machinery. What I didn't realize back then was that her position as a public figure didn't exempt her from my empathy as a woman. She seems to be at a healthier place now, both mentally and physically. Then again, the latter is not my or anyone else's business. Part 4 Mad Woman You know, you have to hand it to 45 for outing the woke in a lot of people, especially celebrities. And Taylor was not an exception. She's noticeably no longer silent about American politics after years of coming across as a centrist. There's even a conspiracy theory among the alt-right that Aryan goddess Taylor Swift is secretly among them. The political ambivalence from Taylor has even prompted alt-writers like Milo Yiannopoulos, however the fuck you pronounce his last name, <laughs> to write headlines like, Taylor Swift is an alt-right pop icon, claiming that it's because she's white, American, and, quote, isn't very forthcoming about her political or religious views, so fans are kept guessing as to where she really stands. But, alas, she was no longer America's sweetheart who didn't challenge your politics and your freedom and your liberties and your American values. Turns out, she wasn't America's next top neo-Nazi. So find a new icon, QAnon. The tipping point was when Donald Trump in female form Marsha Blackburn ran for Senate in the state of Tennessee during the 2018 U.S. midterm elections. Taylor, for the first time in her career, was publicly explicitly political. In an Instagram post, she addressed her apoliticism in the past, the social realities that prompted her to break her silence, presented the case for voting against Blackburn, and urged eligible voters in her fan base to register to vote. 
Even though Blackburn won, that didn't completely discourage Taylor from being more vocal when it comes to politics. In fact, it was only the beginning. Her seventh studio album, Lover, included a couple of tracks that expressed her views on sexism and bigotry. Even if these attempts were, to me, hit and miss. There was You Need to Calm Down, Taylor's pro-gay, anti-bigotry anthem. It was Shake It Off, but Make It Rainbow. The music video, co-executive produced and co-directed by Taylor herself, offered a smorgasbord of blink-and-you'll-miss-it cameos of LGBTQ icons and drag queens as famous of female icons in the music industry, and celebrated not giving a fuck about what the haters had to say. It also closes the book on her women-fighting-other-women story with Katy Perry, Bad Was the Blood No More. But while she does the right thing by using her platform to urge viewers to sign a change.org petition for the U.S. Senate to pass the Equality Act, I'm inclined to agree with some critics that the messaging had its misses. She was accused of queerbaiting, which I'm not sure I fully agree with, but there's another criticism of the video with which I actually agree. Now, I want to make it clear that I believe in the sincerity of the intention to be inclusive, of sharing her platform with a community that still struggles to be respected. The execution had its misses, particularly in a moment in the video that shows her and other celebrities acting unbothered, even as a mob um, with their Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve, picket signs protest around them. Social commentator Natalie Wynn, aka ContraPoints on YouTube, aka one of the biggest influences of this podcast, calls this the Westboro Baptist Church theory of bigotry. It's not an actual academic theory, but a simple enough explanation for a certain form of bigotry. She even used Taylor's music video as an illustration of this. Natalie's Westboro Baptist Church theory of bigotry is the idea that bigots are people who outright say, We hate you, God hates you, and we're all marching around with signs about how much we hate you. This was the image of bigotry portrayed in the video. In fact, the choice of portraying the Westboro Baptist Church theory of bigotry perpetuates the idea that bigotry resides in the hearts and minds of poor, uneducated hillbillies who misread the Bible. While such bigots do exist, the more dangerous bigots are actually the powerful people, the ones with access to wealth, education, and influence. You know, like the ones who create billion-dollar empires writing children's books about a, a wizard who lived in a closet only to find out that he's destined to defeat the wizarding world's supreme bigot? Or, you know, like a world-famous boxer who uses his position as a senator to deprive the basic recognition of rights and dignity of gay people because that's not what his favorite book says he should do. As opposed to saying outright bigoted things like God hates you, 
these types of bigots are shadier. And because the bigots that we see represented are often the ones with direct or outright bigotry, who use slurs or openly contemptuous, discriminate, and use violence, we're not keen on recognizing those who frame their bigotry as concern or invoke free speech or cry cancel culture when expressing their bigotry. They say things like, I know and love trans people, but... Erasing the concept of sex removes the ability of many to meaningfully discuss their lives. Or, I respect every trans person's right to live any way that feels authentic and comfortable to them. I'd march with you if you were discriminated against the basis of being trans. At the same time, my life has been shaped by being female. I do not believe it's hateful to say so. Mm-hmm. It's similar to the greatest hits of bigots in denial statements like, I can't be racist. I have black friends. Or, I have a wife, a sister, a mother, a daughter. <laughs> that can't make me sexist or a misogynist or... Whatever you fucking feminazis want to call me. These people don't think they're bigots. They just think of themselves as defenders. You know, defenders of God, of national values, of the nuclear heteronormative family, of women, of the children. What about the children? For the children. So, portraying bigots as lower-class, uneducated degenerates who are not in positions of political power or have any social influence whatsoever, simplifies bigotry as mere psychological hate. What they need is to be called in. Meanwhile, the true villains are those who have power, the ones capable of influencing policy and laws. Then there's The Man, an anthem that calls attention to gender double standards and speaks much about Taylor's experiences in the music industry and being a woman in the public eye. The music video shows Taylor serving drag king executive realness as a rich, white, able-bodied man, honey, satirizing the privilege such men hold. We see the man, man spread in the subway, take control in his Wall Street job, just like Leo in The Wolf of Wall Street, party in a yacht with scantily clad women around him, get praised for doing the bare minimum of parenthood, and throw a tantrum while playing tennis. The video pokes a fun at the double standards, but it limited itself to just that poking fun. While most women can laugh along to the ridiculousness of gendered double standards as portrayed in the video, it doesn't really feel cathartic to do so. I actually anticipated the release of this music video, curious to see what she had to say, but 
admit that I felt a little underwhelmed by it. The song is arguably feminist for its criticism of gender dynamics in neoliberal times and the struggle for power. But it limits itself to the idea that if I were a man, then I'd have XYZ. If I were a man, I'd be evaluated on a different set of standards. It is as if the standard for equality is having what men have. The song's message then comes across as safe, digestible feminism that just alludes to frustrations with the patriarchy. It barely deconstructs the problem. This then reflects notions of equality and freedom, typical of liberal feminism wherein the idea of equality is actually sameness, where the yardstick is that already set by men. The idea of equality here means fitting into the prevailing male-centric structure rather than radically shifting the gender order. But, of course, celebrity feminism can't really shatter the system. It can point to its existence, shake it, but it cannot dismantle it. Not when it hinges on capitalism. Remember, Taylor is a businesswoman, a savvy businesswoman who operates in a capitalist society, so her messaging cannot displace the system from which she benefits. Compare the man to one of her songs from the album Folklore, Mad Woman, a track which is arguably more expressive of feminist sentiments. The word mad can mean insane or angry, and the song plays on those two meanings. The lyrics, they don't play nice, and is one of the first moments where Taylor says fuck you in a song. Here, she's allowed herself to express anger and rage at the injustice of being gaslighted and distorted. Some celebrities hesitate to project an image of anger, lest they be called the angry feminist, but Mad Woman gives us a glimpse of that Mad Woman in Taylor. And I say that this is more expressive of feminist sentiments because, to me, a lot of feminist work comes from anger. A sense of injustice, productively addressed through feminist work. For so long, she played nice, encouraged us to shake it off or tell the haters they need to calm down. But realistically, there's a mad woman in all of us. If there isn't, ask yourself why that is. And so... Miss Americana Taylor is now at a point in her career where she's continued to be more political than she was when she was younger. She's found her voice and gone through experiences that have allowed her to find a feminist in her. Conclusion This is her trying. So, is Taylor Swift a feminist icon? Probably not. Given her status as a celebrity, her feminism will inevitably fall under what scholars call celebrity feminism. 
Celebrity feminism is part of a continuum of feminisms which Sarah Bennett Weiser calls popular feminism. According to Bennett Weiser, celebrity feminism is a, quote, spectacular, media-friendly expression of feminism that achieves more visibility, and expressions that critique patriarchal structures and systems of racism and violence are more obscured, end quote. To some, Taylor's a girl boss feminist icon. To others, her feminism is flawed. And I see the points of both sides. On the one hand, she's been openly celebrating other women in the music industry. She writes songs that hold up the mirror to society's perception and treatment of women. And she challenges gendered double standards for public figures. On the other hand, She's also been labeled an example of white feminism. For example, in an essay published in Pulp, the online student publication of the University of Sydney Union, self-proclaimed Swifty Alice Petch claims that there is, quote, a problem with the feminist narrative she has put forward. It fails to acknowledge that there is a realm of female experience she does not and cannot understand, end quote. Like me, Petch uses the man as an example, interpreting the track as Taylor, quote, implying that if she were a man, she would be the best man. Because, after all, a straight, white, able male is arguably the only class with more privilege than a straight, able-bodied female, end quote. It's important to keep in mind that as talented and hardworking as Taylor Swift is, she is still a rich, white, able-bodied, cisgender straight woman in an immense position of privilege. That said, what I am on the lookout for now is intersectionality in her feminism. So far, she has pledged to donate to organizations aimed at helping sexual assault victims, has expressed support for the LGBTQ community, and even has spoken about Black Lives Matter. She's trying, as far as I can see. So, perhaps she too is a feminist in progress. I'm trying to be as educated as possible on how to respect people, on how to deprogram the misogyny in my own brain. Toss it out, reject it, and resist it. Like, there is no such thing as a slut. There is no such thing as a bitch. There is no such thing as someone who's bossy. There's just a boss. We don't want to be condemned for being multifaceted. Sorry, that was a real soapbox. Why did I say sorry? Thanks for joining me in this episode of A Feminist in Progress. You can send an email at feministinprogresspod at gmail.com for comments, conversation, and collaboration. Link to the transcript of the episode is in the episode description. And if you find value in what I do, consider giving a donation via paypal.me slash feministinprogress. You can follow me on Instagram at feministinprogresspod. And remember, progress, not perfection. <music>